0: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, joined here by my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Greetings, you guys. Hey there. Aaron, who's uh, who's on the program? I talked to Brandon Soderberg and Baynard Woods. Uh, They're the authors of I Got a Monster. The book is about a squad of plainclothes police officers in Baltimore who conspired... Uh, primarily through the leader, Wayne Jenkins, to rob high-level drug dealers, what they called monsters. They would detain them, arrest them, uh, go to their house or other locations and take large sums of cash or drugs, and then report far smaller amounts of cash and drugs when it went into evidence. They later would actually deal the drugs through a bail bondsman, This all came out at a trial in which uh, most of the police officers flipped and all of them later went to jail. Um, Brandon and Baynard covered that trial and this book came out of their coverage of that trial. Uh, It's a fascinating book. They were both um, part of the Baltimore city paper when it still existed. Uh, Brandon was the final editor in chief of the Baltimore city paper. So we talked a bunch about that and, uh, and their careers.
2: I'm glad that we, uh, we are having more discussions about all weeklies on this podcast. They're near and dear to my heart. And, uh, they're like, uh, they once
0: were an incredible part of journalism in America. And there are still some that are pushing through, but, um, as this interview will tell you, not the Baltimore city paper. <laughs> heartbreaking. If you are pushing through with whatever you're doing, perhaps you can't do it in person with other people anymore, but you can do it as an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it easy. They support the show and they have it for years. So uh, you could do them a favor and uh, start your uh, newsletter with them.
3: Thanks, MailChimp. And now here is Aaron with Baynard Woods and Brandon
0: Soderbergh. Welcome, Brandon Soderbergh and Baynard Woods. Thanks for having us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Okay, I literally, I read you guys' book in under 24 hours, so I'm just going to start. I feel like slightly caffeinated right now. I'm just going to launch right into it. Uh, You just wrote a book called I Got a Monster. Maybe we could start off by you just telling me what the monster in the title refers to.
2: So the monster in the title refers to kind of big time drug dealers that the criminal mastermind cop in our book, Wayne Jenkins, was going after. When he found a big drug dealer he wanted to rob, he would uh, call his uh, buddy and say, I got a monster. And that was kind of hint that this was like not sort of a low stakes robbery that these dirty cops were doing on the daily basis, but sort of a big fish that they could get for a lot of cash and a lot of cocaine.
0: Walk me through like how this story came to you. You're both reporters in Baltimore. When did you first get a scent of this story?
3: Yeah, it's crazy. We And it's the first story we ever wrote together was back in 2014. We were both working for the Baltimore City Paper and we got word that uh, this cop, Daniel Herschel, was using rap videos and rap lyrics as probable cause to get warrants to raid the house of this rapper named Young Moose. And so we started reporting on that. And three years after that, the U.S. Attorney's Office had this press release that they had indicted seven cops. And that cop, Herschel, was one of them. And as we got into it, it turned out he was one of the least bad or at least ambitiously criminal of the cops who were indicted.
0: At what point did you even start getting the full outlines of what really was a pretty extensive conspiracy?
2: I mean, I think we really got a sense of it during the trial, which was early 2018. It was just kind of day after day of crazy and outrageous revelations, nor cops being named, you know, stories of chases or cocaines exploding out windows breaking into safes, breaking into storage lockers, a lot of colorful uh, witnesses, a lot of cops testifying against each other. Bainard kind of said this. He covered the Freddie Gray trials, the police officers who were charged with killing Freddie Gray. And that was sort of, you know, this massive international story. And those trials in comparison were kind of pretty uh, tedious even, right, Bainard?
3: Yeah, I mean, the one of the reasons we decided to do a book was because in the Freddie Gray case, there were every news outlet in the country had reporters there, and the trial was all about seatbelt protocol. Were you trained to hook seatbelts? Were you told to hook seatbelts? What did the manual say about seatbelts? And it was all, and yet everyone was sort of hanging and everywhere, and there was almost no one from the press outside of the city there. There was one, Jessica Lusinop from uh, BBC, was the only person really from outside of Baltimore who was there covering it at all. And we're like, why is everyone missing this story? And it was that was only one of three federal trials. So all of those trials, produced a massive amount of text messages, wiretaps, photographs, the kind of stuff that as reporters, you just you get real dialogue and stuff that just makes you salivate. And We're like, we got to put this together in chronological order even just has a lot of power because it in a trial, you know, something things the way they drip out, you, you don't know how they fit together. So just creating a timeline is when we started to see like, wow, this is really something huge.
0: Had either of you reported extensively on the police before this story?
3: Yeah, I mean, we both started really that story about Hersell was one of our first police stories. And then I ended up covering uh, the police for The Guardian during 2016, 2017, here in Baltimore, primarily, and had a bunch of uh, the Freddie Gray cases, also the Adnan Syed case, a lot of stuff was happening here then. And I was reporting on the police a lot. And so it's kind of You look back and like, how did I miss some of this as well? Like, How did I not see that this was going on? But of course, the only people that knew were the defense attorneys and the victims. And the defense attorney's jobs weren't to say, hey, your honor, my client had uh, 10 kilos of cocaine and not eight. And so it wasn't coming out in court cases and stuff.
2: And then, yeah, I was I started at City Paper as a fact checker, so I was fact-checking and helping to fact-check police stories and things like that in Baynard's work and other people's work. And then I started to do it myself, and then I eventually became the editor-in-chief of the paper. So I had kind of this weird tension where I sort of was at the top and the bottom of the rung in terms of looking at that, and that kind of taught me a lot on how to do it. And Baynard did a really extensive story in 2017, kind of at City Paper where we worked, was closing down about a man who was allegedly committed suicide in a police precinct. And that story was a really massive and complicated story. And that was some of the stuff that really trained us. But it really began with the strange First Amendment story of cops using lyrics against a rapper to try to keep him in jail.
0: Wesley Lowry was on this show a couple of months ago, and um, he said something in relation to protests that um, – Sort of applies to a situation like this, applies to fact checking, which he said you can't take statements from the police at face value in a story in which the police are the subject of the story. In this story, you really can't take police statements at face value because a huge, huge part of this story is about the falsification of police reports, the falsification of evidence when there wasn't stuff that you could literally hear on wiretaps, of which there's actually quite a bit in the story, but for the stuff where you had to rely on people's memories to reconstruct stuff, how did you start to assemble those facts without the police facts? Who else are you talking to when you're trying to put a story like this together?
3: I mean, defense attorneys were really our way into the story. And because the cops were the villains in the sort of ordinary cat and mouse kind of version of an investigator uh, tracking down a crime. We decided that the defense attorneys were the ones who had really been paying attention to this. So, you know, but we knew they also had their own agendas to push off. And so we tried to triangulate as, as, as many different, you know, between court testimony, between what the victims then said, what various photographic evidence going out, talking to people at the places. But we really wanted to always find, I mean, that I love that interview with Wes. And I think that's exactly right. The whole police say kind of reporting is one of the ways we got to this story is just taking them all on face value. And so uh, really not taking anyone at face value here, but trying to fit it all together with as many sources as possible.
2: And there being two of us kind of helped that too because then we're bouncing our, our skepticism off of each other as well. And we kind of took the lead on different parts of the story, but we were always involved in the other side. So I might be writing something and I might have talked to some people that were involved in this or even just some people that saw the crime because we would go to places and talk to people. Did you see anything on this day two years ago? Do you remember when these cops were here? And you sort of triangulate all of that against what you also know from documents and then you throw it to the other writer. So I throw it to Boehner, and then he starts to kind of call BS or challenge it. And we kind of go from there. So having two authors is also a way to make sure that neither one of us fell into, you know, police say is this sort of the scourge of journalism, but also you don't want to, we want to avoid defense attorneys say, or even uh, people that were victimized say. And so trying to bounce that all off was really useful out of another person to kind of challenge you on stuff like that too.
3: Yeah, especially because we both have been each other's editors for a long time. I started as Brandon's editor at the paper. Then later he was my editor and so it it, in some ways it's just like this extremely edited book where every every chapter we would just go back and forth and back and forth so many times it's hard to we can't say oh that's my chapter or that's his they you know which was also how we were able to get a voice out of it but we really pushed each other as much as possible and acting like editors.
0: What I want to ask you about now is about informants. There's like a huge, huge role that confidential informants and snitching Plays in the book. So, for you as journalists, when information seems to have come from a confidential informant, how do you navigate those confidential informant in, uh, relationships? Do you treat a confidential informant for the police as a potential source for yourself? Are you trying to find those informants? And how much do you feel like you have to sort of protect who gave you? information in a case like this, where pretty clearly people were uh, in mortal danger who gave certain forms of information at certain junctures.
3: There are a couple different people who worked as snitches for the cops that we talked to. One of them gave a a letter in the sentencing of one of the officers with his name and his number and everything that was kind of. And so we were even a little more protective of him than he was. We didn't use his name with anything, even though he put it in a letter and, but we very much wanted these people as sources, partly because we wanted to know how the cops acted around them. So like this one guy, he was white. And so he told us that like, which corroborated some of the other stuff we'd heard that like Jenkins used the N word uh, regularly. Jenkins let this guy shoot up around him. And so like those things were helpful, but there was another guy who came to us and had information, was an informant and, They had told people that he'd informed them that he was the snitch. And so he had a price out on his head all over town and he was desperate to get money and to get out of town. And we couldn't use anything that he said really at all because it became clear when when we told him we couldn't pay him and we couldn't do anything like that, that he was ramping up the information that he had to try to sweeten the pot for us. And then that made anything that he told us really suspect. I do believe that his initial situation of of the danger that he was in, but it still became something that we became a little leery of.
2: But And then I think also because the the way we were approaching it was just sort of a wide net in getting as much information from anyone as possible, even if that informant Baynard mentioned didn't necessarily have information that was plot-wise useful. He might say something that was really tiny that triggered something in our heads it was like oh we've heard this before or he might mention another cop or something so even those kind of guys like that that was important to hear them out because they reached out and he was in a he was very scared for his life and that was a really surreal one because after we talked to him he made us drive him to get a cheese steak which was fine but it was very clear that he kind of put us in the car with him because he thought he would have less of a chance of being shot if two uh, white boys were driving him around I think and that was kind of just another element of navigating that was also to show like, hey, man, we're here, we'll listen to you, we'll see this through. We're not going to say, hey, thanks for your three hours. And then like, hey, we're not going to drive you get a cheesesteak.
3: And the level that they use informants is, I mean, your question's important because the first case that was just settled this last week and where the city finally agreed to pay the plaintiff in that case was murdered last April and he was murdered in a case where they set snitches against each other to get them murdered. And we've had a lot of information about the way that they turn informants on each other to basically put hits out on them. And so it is a really dangerous position for people in all kinds of ways. The cops wanting to be after them, as well as the streets wanting to be after them.
0: (laughs) This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk free. Now normally you get a 2 week free trial but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com/longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life
1: just got a lot easier.
0: these cops were trying to rob everyone. I mean, they were insatiable in their desire to rob as much money from as many uh, major drug dealers as possible. And it seems like they hit a lot of targets. Did you feel like while you were reporting this story, you basically had to become familiar with the entire drug trade in Baltimore? I mean, it's even touches on some other trades like what was that like for you? Like how far did you sort of have to go to feel like you had the grounding for the story?
2: I mean, I think that you had, we were able to build on some of our knowledge and experience. Like I know quite a bit about the world of heroin in Baltimore because of You know, previously using heroin and also just kind of reporting on it and talking to people and knowing people in that world. And then having grown up in Baltimore, I kind of end up being just adjacent to some of those things. So we had and Baynard's done a ton of reporting, has lived here for a while. So we kind of had that grounding and then it was sort of navigating all of these economies, these underground and above ground economies at all mattered and kind of digging as deep as we could. And then, again, kind of bouncing that off each other and bouncing that off knowledge we were picking up or things we learned and kind of go from there.
0: The book is written like a thriller. Uh, It's rare to get a journalistic account that is this visceral. And I think some of that is due to how crazy what these cops were involved in really was. But it also is the way that you present the story. It's very different than the sort of sober, hand-wringing, podcast true crime that has become popular. It's actually fun is how I would describe reading the book. But I think that it sort of serves a double duty because it really puts us in the mind and personality of the officers who are involved. This isn't just a, like, a faceless story about bad cops. It's a story about some very specific people who actually had pretty different motivations from wanting their family to have more resources all the way to one of the cops. Jenkins seems kind of like a psychopath. I'm curious about that decision to present the story that way. And then what other dimensions of reporting are necessary to tell a story in that way?
3: It was really important to us from the beginning that we tell it through scenes. And it was, even though we really like a lot of books that, you know, the reporters are, are a character in the book. You know, you're, co-host Evan's book, The Mastermind, was coming out when we were writing it. And I really loved the way that that was put together and sort of following him as he's trying to figure this out. But it seemed boring for us in our story for that when we had all of this other stuff to try to make ourselves be in it. And and we really wanted to create some kind of, we've been talking a lot lately about some kind of leftist, anti-racist true crime that we really haven't seen that takes the conventions of the thriller that often smuggle in all of this really right-wing pro-police propaganda that all of our cops were raised on. I mean, it's important, like Jenkins was raised on the stories of cops having to crash cars and break rules and stuff in order to get the bad guys. So we wanted to take that and subvert it while, you know, using its methods to blow it up from inside while also being really rigorously reported. And so it was... The more we got into it, the more like having that sort of tone and atmosphere and stuff as part of it, that, that crime fiction even does so well, was something that we really wanted to do.
2: And I think we also realized that, you know, we've done reporting where, you know, I think most people derisively might see us as advocacy journalists and things like that. And so we've kind of done that work. And I think we've always been very interested in writing and style, not just reporting, but we did you know these daily dispatches that had some pretense to kind of being literary and narrative during the trial we'd kind of pull a story out of each day of the trial and kind of do the best we could with it but the story wasn't hitting that way so sort of pragmatically we're like if we want people to care about this which is partially why you write a book right you want more people to know about something we realized that we need to do it differently and that you said viscerally Aaron which is really something I think about a lot is we wanted the book to feel how the story feels and to read like, to kind of translate in the way that a novel would, you can kind of feel like you're there. And then especially because we knew that the cops would be the focus, we wanted to make sure that it kind of had a way that it could tell that story without devolving into being some weird version of police say or something so this idea that the the pros is kind of a camera right on their shoulders with them and i like that kind of idea they're always saying well you need to get the police's side well this is the police's side this is what they were doing when they didn't think they were being recorded or you know wiretapped or anything and you kind of get a sense of it really viscerally through that so that was really important too to make sure that it felt not like journalism. Bainard said this early on. He said this a lot. It's like the idea that the more important the story is, the more boring the prose can be is like an unwise decision that a lot of journalists I think make.
0: In terms of transitioning from what I will not call advocacy journalism to this more thriller based journalism and trying to set things within scenes What allows you to construct a scene? What are the necessary ingredients to a scene? Because a lot of times when I ask people this question, they'll be like, well, I take lots of notes. I look at every detail, but you're not actually present at any of these bizarre drug robberies. Where do you find the scenes from the trial, from your reporting, et cetera?
2: So basically, once we located the ostensibly the narrative We had a ton of scenes, like anything. Okay, they robbed a homeless guy on September 8th. Um, You know, they caused a car crash on August 28th or whatever. It's kind of all sitting there waiting. And then once you dig into it, you start with the documents and you start with testimony. And then generally then I would jump to Google earth and look at the scene a little bit and get a sense. That would be sort of a really rough sketch of a scene. If it didn't have those basics, then it probably wasn't going to be a scene. So it kind of had this interesting way in which what became a scene was determined by the information we had. It had this lawyer-like quality where it's like, well, what are the facts? And then through the facts, you can kind of dig deeper. So you might go to the victims and then kind of go from there. And so by cross-referencing all that, you would sort of write a scene. And there was the monotony of it too. Like A lot of it's just they robbed another guy, they robbed another guy. So it It's like, what can we build as a scene? What serves as plot and what serves as interesting to us, too? I mean, so sometimes major pieces of information are referenced quickly because we don't have a scene or we just felt like we didn't have enough to build a scene. Like at some point, Jenkins would have approached two of the other cops about dealing drugs for him. We have information here or there about that, but we don't know where how exactly it played out. So it's kind of that way of the scenes would determine themselves based on what you had.
3: And as a citizen, I mean, the surveillance state is terrible, but as as a reporter in this case, like the camera footage just helps so much. The body cams, so if they forget to turn off their body camera and he's driving across town, you know, arguing with this guy and also calling his sister about a vacation. And so you just get all of this. And body camera footage has just such an amazing high resolution and stuff that there's a lot of things that we could actually see or hear. And some of it would be like in one of the audio recordings Right after um, Philando Castile is killed in Minneapolis, and they just kidnap a guy at a Home Depot, take him out to his house in a different jurisdiction, hold him and his wife there for a long time, steal twenty thousand dollars from him. But then they think one of them stole three thousand of that twenty among themselves, and they're going back and forth on the phone. And and at the same time, the, one of the cops, Gondo, is talking with a woman in New York who is listening to Killer Mike on a BET special about police violence. And so Brandon was able to boost that audio. And just by, you know, you realize that to build a scene like Flannery O'Connor said, you need three senses. And like, you need a few like important details that make the reader feel like they're gonna be there. If you load it down too much, it's gonna just, it's not gonna feel like a scene anymore anyway, because it gets soggy and falls through the bottom or something. So you really just need the couple really well placed that can keep it moving fast too. So I think that fast pace helped us with the scenes that we didn't have to be able to say what it smelled like always or whatever.
0: You, you can't just do a book that's like, and then another robbery, and then another robbery. The book needs an arc. The story has to start somewhere and end somewhere. So it kind of starts in the Freddie Gray protests. I think Jenkins mugs someone who's taken a bunch of prescription pills from a pharmacy and then tries to go resell those. So I think that's one of the first events in the book. And then the book goes through the trial and is now coming out during another wave of police protests. How did you think about telling this as an overall story with an arc? How did you think about what it added up to once you put all these scenes together?
3: Yeah, I mean, they were committing crimes going back to at least 2009, if not earlier. And so there were a lot of different moments that we could have started. But one of our earliest decisions was, I mean, it it starts with the prologue in the uprising after the death of Freddie Gray, but it really, the narrative starts in March of 2016 when they robbed this guy, Ori Stevenson. And the reason that that was the arc really was, Stevenson was represented by, I guess, our protagonist, Ivan Bates, the defense lawyer, who's one of the defense lawyers who's trying to track them down. And we knew that that case went from It was the biggest robbery that they were ended up pleading guilty to. Um, They took over $100,000 and a couple kilos of cocaine from him. It had most of our main characters in and it goes all the way up to testifying in court. We saw that that was a very clear arc and that everyone had changed positions. You know, there had been real action because everyone was somewhere different by the end of that part than they were in the first scene. And anything else we needed before that could be done as a flashback. And so finding that arc was really probably the most important decision we made. And it still took us a while to realize that that was the arc we had and trim off some of the extraneous shit that was like so important at the moment. And you're like, oh yeah, that that doesn't need to be there.
0: What was it like taking on a project of this scale with with a partner?
2: I mean, it was great. Boehner and I had worked together on a lot of different projects in different capacities, but then and he's written a book before. I have not. So it was good to have someone who knows what they're doing do it. But then also just we knew the story in different ways and we could play off the story together. And we talk a lot when we're wandering around or smoking or whatever about narrative and style. And so we had sort of I think we've gotten in each other his heads about that. And so he really had a strong basis for doing it. And then from there, we were able to push each other and challenge each other and rewrite each other in a way that didn't feel obtrusive and then it was that just made the work easier you know for example baynard wrote chapter one he took the lead on chapter one for example that's very clear to me i remember that but then weirdly enough i remember that chapter one is the first dispatch from the trial we wrote and Baynard wrote it more straight this is way before he decided to do a book i remember getting his him filing and me being like no no the beginning of this is jenkins going down the road the wrong way that felt symbolic that's still the beginning of the book so that's weird but so that really helped develop style as well because it had to kind of work for both of us and sometimes that was big deal where does the narrative go and then sometimes it was just like sentence choice Baynard, you've really compared it to like being in a band which i've not been in a band but you want to talk about that i think that's kind of a really good way to look at it
3: yeah i mean it made it so much more fun in a way it made the anxiety and the the existential dread so much less of like, when you send it off to the editor, you know, you know, at least one other person has had all of these fights with you about it in a way that like your friends who read your manuscripts or whatever can't do. And so like, there's someone that you can talk about all of the crazy details that matter to you, but to no one else and the inside jokes and the compositional process we felt like was like being in a band. It was like you lay down the rhythm section One person would lay down sort of the structure of a chapter. And since we were both doing reporting for it, like he may lay down the beats for a thing. And then I'd be like, oh, yeah. And and it would sort of feel like adding fills and melody or vocal hook or something like that and fleshing it out to be a whole song from just the thing that you had. And so we built it up like you would build a song, almost like a wall of sound. So it really was so much more fun than solitary writing.
2: And there was also just weird stuff that we could do where, like, I make playlists when I write long stories. Like, I wrote a very long dirt bike story about dirt bike subculture for, I reported out for like six months. It was a cover story in City Paper back in 2015. And when I wrote that, I was listening to a lot of jazz that was really long, (laughs) like 30-minute tracks. That seemed to feel to me like dirt bikes, you know, and in terms of music for me, like I I began as a music critic and I write to music. And so there was also this interesting way that sometimes we could communicate ideas to each other in kind of a nonverbal way. So I was making these weird playlists when I would set a scene that kind of were like, okay, kind of set the tone and the rhythm and the tonal change of the scene. Then I would send that to Boehner, and Boehner kind of had to interpret that, or he could have told me I was crazy and ignored it. But it was just a very weird, different kind of almost, it felt to me kind of goofy and new-agey way to communicate ideas, not only always, I mean, we're both pretty cerebral, but it added to the visceralness of it to like kind of throw Boehner a playlist and be like, I don't know, I wrote it to this, see if this makes any sense to you
0: you both have um, been editors. So once you've gone through this sort of two-person collaborative process, and then a book editor comes in and says, no, I think it should be this way. And you're like, hey, we both agree on this. Like, does that create any sort of a different dynamic when it's two writers and an editor versus, you know, a more traditional single writer editor setup?
3: Maybe actually the opposite of that. Like, oh, we both agree go to hell, it was, uh, if one of us would get sort of mad and like, what is he talking about? The other one might be like, yeah, no, you know, you, you're not lost again in that uh, sinkhole of your own thoughts where you, you misread things. So things that would bother him wouldn't bother me and vice versa. But Mark, our editor at St. Martin's, did a really good job at helping us just focus on, because we still were both nerding out over all the little details and stuff. I'm like, you really need to focus on this like through line of this Bates and Jenkins, sort of cat and mouse going back and forth, which we had as the spine, but we had too much underbrush going over it sometimes to see it. And so, I mean, the one case where I think we were able to be like, no, we really want to do this was the title, which we really liked. And he maybe didn't like as much at first. And that was where we were like, we're going to team up and try to to make sure that we can keep our title.
0: All right, so Brandon, uh, things that I know about you so far from this interview, you were a fact checker at the city paper, and you did heroin at some point. Uh, what in what order, and uh, you know um, what sequence of life events uh, led you to get into journalism?
2: Oh, uh, really quickly, um, I went to a small uh, liberal arts college, Goucher College, outside of Baltimore, and I was an English major because I didn't know what else I was going to do. And so I was writing a ton at Goucher, just that's how it was there for whatever reason. Like as an English major, I probably wrote like, you guys read like a bunch of long ass papers. And so when I finally got out of college and was already sort of uh, nagged by all of the existential and deeper dreads that would lead me to use a lot of drugs, I was very kind of bored, you know, and had a lot of energy and started just writing for fun and Without getting in too much or anything, around the same time, a good friend uh, committed suicide. Sorry, it's getting really heavy, really quick, dope and suicide. But um, so yes, yeah, so those kind of things combined. I'm out of college. My best friend is dead, and I feel pretty bad. Um, so I started writing, and I was doing blogging, like music, rap, basically hip hop writing in terms of politics and race, and how that collides with hip-hop because of a blog that was maybe mildly popular I was recommended to the City Paper by some writers then I started freelancing for City Paper started doing more of that and kind of felt like oh well I'm kind of good at this and then parlayed that into doing a lot of writing for the village voice and other places got hired by Spin magazine then got that dollar a word payment which is a really good thing to get if you're trying to buy a lot of drugs (laughs) um if you're (laughs) paying you know you you get 80 bucks for a word review is pretty sick and so i started through that because i was covering hip-hop and was trying to start and do reporting and features because of the racism of the country you have a lot of police targeting rappers that's familiar with that Uh, But at the same time i was covering a lot of club culture in baltimore and police were often raiding or uh, harassing even that that black subculture. So I sort of had this police stuff was on the around the edges of that. Um, and then Spin went through some changes, and I was kind of coasting there for a while, very frustrated. Came back to Baltimore, stopped, got sober ostensibly. A year after that, City Paper was looking for a fact checker, and Baynard kind of grabbed me one night at a bar. We knew each other mostly through email and running into each other. Told me all the answers to say in the interview, and they hired me. And then I started to work with Boehner and kind of went from there. So it's kind of this strange way that I was sort of doing a lot of culture writing, but was clearly Pooja Patel who's a friend from Baltimore, is now the editor of uh, Pitchfork and was formerly at Deadspin and some other places. We talked about how like we realized later in our careers, like we loved music, but we loved music because of everything that was more important than the music that surrounded it. And that was something that sort of moved me into doing more uh, deeper and more complicated reporting about policing and law and order and courts and things like
3: that.
0: Baynard, what life path led you up to the moment where you recommended Brandon become a fact checker at city paper?
3: Yeah, it was a a circuitous pass. I guess like a lot of people who were on this show, I thought I was going to write fiction uh, when I was younger and had no intention of going to college and finally decided I wanted to learn ancient Greek and so I started a, at University of New Mexico, started that, and I thought I'd learn every language that made up English, and that's how you become a writer. If I learned Greek, Latin, and German, that I and French, that I would know how to be a writer. Started doing that and really liked it and ended up doing a PhD in philosophy and ancient Greek philosophy and contemporary continental philosophy, but knew I didn't want to be a professor at all. And I thought the only way to like really live a Socratic life at all was to be a reporter, I very slowly then started trying to do that to write fiction and was researching this thing and found this cop in South Carolina who, a white cop in the early 20th century that used voodoo, hoodoo to govern a black county. And I thought that's way more interesting than the fiction I was trying to do and was able to sell it to a really small press and it's out of print now, but wrote a a book on this guy's story. And the fact that it immediately had interest for people, I was like, oh, people... Nonfiction's way better because you're not stuck in a room by yourself all the time. Half the time you're out talking to fascinating people, the other half, you know, you're stuck in the room and putting it into order. So when my wife and I moved to Baltimore, I'd walk past the city paper and say, I'm going to work there and, and point at it. And I pitched them every week for like a year before getting even acknowledged. Eventually just started getting stories and stories and stories and got hired and uh, then was in the position to be able to, to hire Brandon on there.
0: How long did you feel like you had to be in Baltimore before you felt comfortable reporting on the city itself and weren't worried that someone like Brandon was going to come along and tell you you had dirt bike culture all wrong?
3: I actually had the opposite approach that I felt like so many people who lived here had lived here for a long time, had been, were so jaded by things that they weren't seeing a lot of the stuff. And so there's the way in which coming in as, as a new person who was really excited about everything that other people weren't as excited about necessarily. And I really just wanted to throw myself into the city as much as possible that, and I never, I mean, this city's very, gets very mad if you claim to be of the city and from the city or represent this. And so I just made sure never to do that. And just like, Hey, I'm fascinated by this. And so I, I took it more the way people do when they come to New York. My real model was Joseph Mitchell and the New Yorker. And I realized that like those New Yorker stories he wrote in the, 40s, 50s were really the kind of stories that Baltimore was very similar to New York then, I felt like. And you could almost just pick a Joseph Mitchell story and be like, oh, the fish market is actually a really good story here. And you could go over and do that story, and people here weren't paying as much attention. So it was, it felt like a real warm welcome to me here. I never had that. The only people that get that are the people like, why don't people accept me as being from Baltimore? And it's like, because you're not, just accept that, and then it's fine.
0: When you both landed at the City Paper, were you aware that you were in the twilight of the kind of thing that the City Paper has been historically? Like when you started working at the City Paper, did you think, wow, this is going to bounce back to new heights of glory or we're going to try and do an amazing job for the last, you know, X years that this exists?
2: I mean, I got hired right after the Baltimore Sun Tribune, Tribune owns the Baltimore Sun, the Tribune bought the city paper, which is horrible. Like, that's not what you want your alt weekly to be. So I came in at a moment where it already seemed doomed. And I came in really thinking, what can I do? What can I get away with? And knowing that we were kind of we were on the way down, there's no way that the Baltimore Sun was going to buy an alt weekly and then put money into it. They bought it to kill it. And I was very clear. So it was really about seeing we get away with and seeing how long we could get away with that and trying to learn as much as I could, because I was really sort of a semi ambitious blogger at Spin who sometimes did bigger stories, but was definitely chased by that idea i have to generate hot takes and stuff and so coming to city paper and not having to do that and then having people like boehner that want to show me and we're willing to be like yeah sure if you want to try to report on this police raid of this club go for it dude if it sucks we'll just tell you it sucks or boehner will rewrite it so there was kind of that and that kind of slight fatalism was encouraging because it was just kind of like let's see what we can get away with there's no pretense to it being Oh, we're really doing well, but also at the time they were putting a little money into it at least initially, and it was advised to sort of spend your budget so they when they cut, they're cutting maybe less than you want them to cut. Um and then the staff was just so great and it kept getting really good. We kept bringing people in and experimenting. And so I mean, really briefly, you know, we were told the staff tried to unionize and then the sum was basically like, "Alright, we're going to close you." But they basically said they're going to close us at the end of the year to try to milk all the revenue. So we had this weird June to November 2017 period when I was editor-in-chief already where we were, knew we were dead in the water. I was encouraged people to find jobs. We also, it also was just like, do the shit you want to do. And we did a lot of really complicated, ambitious stories just because we felt like we could and So that was the spirit I came in. That was kind of the spirit we ended it on, too.
3: And, I mean, it's crazy for me to think how clueless Alt weeklies were in some ways of what was coming. Like, when I started there in two thousand and twelve, it was sort of like, well, you know, guys, maybe we ought to take this internet thing seriously. It might be really like sticking around for a while. And maybe the print product isn't the only I mean, like the only thing they used Twitter for at first was just once a week on Wednesday tweet out the print stories. And that was sort of it. And so the our lack of foresight is just like astounding to me at this point. And I mean, but but it's heartbreaking because there was also a magazine at that time, Urbanite magazine. There was the city papers alt weekly. There was a sort of fake alt weekly with the, the Baltimore Sun was putting out. The Sun was more robust, like the number of reporters that we've lost in those years. How many people that were out working and uncovering stuff and aren't now is just that's really heartbreaking.
0: This isn't something we've really talked much about on the show, but it's now in the past and you seem pretty open about it. So I'll just ask you brought up the idea of unionizing and, and that being kind of the um the third strike, um, for whoever was managing, when you made that decision, you you were the editor in chief. So when you're the captain of what seems pretty clearly to be a sinking ship and someone says, Hey, we want to unionize and management says, well, if you unionize, we'll just shut down at the end of the year. Is that a debate in your mind? Like would it be better to be some sort of a underpaid husk of this or not exist at all? Like, where are you at that point when you realize that like achieving your objectives with unionization will simultaneously result in the end of funding for the publication?
2: So, Baynard, um, how honest should I be here?
3: Go ahead and, and we can see how it comes across.
2: Well, so I was technically a management there, so I couldn't be part of the union. Um, there oh, right. had been talk of unionizing a lot, and obviously the staff was pretty much eight people. So there was just talk about unionizing whether and it was, and they obviously knew I was sympathetic. Like I was clearly identified as an anarchist. You have an anarchist running your corporate and alt weekly; it complicates the management uh, staff stuff. Um, what was clear to me when I got as the, into the editor in chief role was that they didn't care about it, and they were kind of choking it out, and they were just killing it as much as they could. And that, I mean, I I got a, after one of the salespeople that I had to kind of report to on a weekly basis left, she sent me a Facebook message. It was like, I really tried. I thought you had great ideas. We could have done something, but they just weren't interested. So there was that kind of, clearly to me the corporate side didn't care. And what really started to happen was they were talking about downsizing. They were like, how would you feel if we put uh, Baltimore Sun stories in the city paper? And I would just sit in the meetings and be like, oh, let me think about that. And I was stalling a lot. Um, And I really kind of felt like a spy as the editor-in-chief that I was sort of in the machine and I was talking to all these guys in suits. And I would just kind of smile and like, yes, I understand profits are down. I understand, you know, I know sometimes we do controversial things and those are hard to sell. And then I would sort of sit there and scheme with Baynard and some other people. So what ended up happening, to be honest, was that I got a sense that they were going to do some major cuts. And I basically met with a certain member of the staff who was not management and said, uh, it's time for the nuclear option. Your only option here is uh, to unionize. And if you do it, you might be able to give get you guys some severance. You might keep the paper alive a little longer. And I'm not sure if I can get in trouble for saying that, but whatever. Um, But that was really, so. there was really like a weird scheme. We were just so deeply connected to each other that I didn't, the option would have been reducing the staff by like 75% and using content from other places or go, sorry, the nuclear option and see what happens. And I just didn't think that this paper as a husk of itself would have been worth saving because it was just the beginning of the end anyway. And so that was kind of how I thought about it was I kind of had talked to some people on staff and been like, here's what you should do. And I think it was the right thing to do. And so I think, would there be a Paper City paper now? Maybe. Would it be interesting or good? No way. So I think it was the right decision to make. And then the way that's maybe helpful for other people out there would be that if you have a sympathetic management, you should unionize. And if you have a shithead management, you should unionize because like... That's a test for them. Like I was talking to people at the Washington City paper after they were bought by a rich guy and I told them to unionize and they were like, well, that might alienate people. And I was like, yeah, you should test your owner. And so I really encourage that unionization as both the nuclear option and as a test on what how serious they take it.
3: I mean, the other thing to jump in here for a second is that immediately once that happened, we started planning to start a new paper really shortly after the last city paper came out within the same month we put out an issue of the baltimore beat which was uh, as a print product was very short lived the partners we'd come with just sort of pulled out unexpectedly but it was immediately and there were a lot of things to improve we were like we you know this is a majority black city and city paper had largely been a, a majority uh, white paper and so there were things that we thought needed to change with the whole business model anyway and that that wasn't quite able to happen as we wanted it to initially but it was definitely moving it, it wasn't just Saying, okay, we're going to take this down. It's like we're going to try to take something else up also at the same time.
0: This seems to be like a, I don't know if I'd say it's a common story, but it's not a totally isolated story in what's happening in the media now in which a group of people has been working with each other, wants to continue working with some semblance of each other, doing somewhat similar things, but doesn't want to do it under the existing management or the existing management doesn't want them around anymore. And what did you learn trying to like make your own city paper from nothing, even for a short period?
2: I mean, the main thing we learned was we needed to own it. We were so excited to do it. And we were so excited to have a, um, a funder that we didn't demand ownership. And we'd really always imagine it in these sort of very idealistic ways of like, we'll create this thing. And then we made sure that the editor, Lisa Stone McRae, was a woman of color and it would sort of be her paper. So we really were like our sort of the really goofy sides of my own anarchist politics of being like, hey, man, I don't want to own anything. I'll just put all my blood, sweat and tears in this thing for eight months, but then I won't own it, which made it really easy to kill. So that was something I learned was that you really need to own the thing. and You need to build that power in that way. Um, and instead we kind of did this, Thing that was maybe, I mean, I don't regret it, but it was we maybe were so excited to do it and so desperate to have another alt because we knew our alt was dying that we maybe didn't make the best decisions about how to who owned that thing. And so it was very easy for them to say, Hey, this isn't making money after four months, we're gonna end it.
3: I guess the only on the other hand, they pulled the plug on it like right as this trial was starting, and so maybe this book wouldn't if they wouldn't have pulled the plug then the book might not have happened either. So
0: what's it been like launching this book into a pandemic and a national reckoning on policing simultaneously?
3: Locally, it's been insane. Like the way people have been reading it in Baltimore, it's like the tiger King of this moment in Baltimore (laughs) um, where it's like the thing that people are talking about and sharing their funny scenes and their memes. And, uh, so that's been really wild. And I think that wouldn't have been the case if it weren't for the pandemic, because I think people would have been like, oh, I got drunk with them at that party for it. And then they wouldn't feel like they had to read it. That would feel like they were doing their thing. Uh, I know I know that story. I don't. And so like I think being a little bit more locked down has actually made people spend more time reading and made it more like. The day it came out, everyone was going to the bookstores and reading it that day and reading it within a day. And so there, it was, it's was it been very wild with the conversation. But yeah, we, we were terrified that the only thing people were going to want to think about was COVID and not about policing. And and then like, as things started happening with policing becoming part of the conversation again, it really shows you, you can't worry in releasing a book like, what are people going to be concerned about or whatever? Because you just have no fucking idea where that's going to land.
2: And then I think that, you know, the book, because it's so close to the cops and so kind of strictly narrative, the events have allowed us to have the thing that's obviously hiding behind the book, which is policing is deeply flawed and problematic. And these guys are the logical extension of policing isn't sort of ever announced in the book. But sort of having all this stuff happening nationwide where people are wondering about policing, asking questions about policing, I think that subtext has been a little easier for us to kind of talk about. And I also think people see it more clearly that it's kind of a true crime book, as Baynard said, was our intention, sort of a leftist true crime book, a leftist anti-racist true crime book, but also that some of those issues are right there under the surface and people that maybe would have read it more as kind of a crazy holy shit story are now also realizing the implications of the police and are having and bouncing it off of uh you know books like end of policing and these sort of more you know like i'm not a well-read abolitionist or anything like that so i can't do that work or explain that but if you read this book and you're also reading these more sort of uh sophisticated books about this stuff i think you can really connect the dots yourself. And that's kind of nice to have written a book that doesn't tell you how to think about police, but I think people are coming out with the right conclusions.
0: What has happened subsequent to the end of the book in terms of like, Baltimore is not such a huge city that the actions of these police represent a tiny portion of convictions. Like this story just sprawls all over the place. I would think we're talking about hundreds if not thousands of cases that are now tainted by their involvement in it. Like, what happens? Is there a movement to overturn those convictions? What's going on in Baltimore, sort of, with the knowledge from this book and the trial?
3: Yes, yeah, so there have been a number of new indictments and criminal charges brought. I, it's up to 15 officers now, if you count the uh, Philadelphia cop who was arrested and pleaded guilty, who had once been in BPD. So they continue to bring charges against officers. But yeah, the state's attorney's office and the Office of the Public Defender who have been going over these cases have agreed on 1,700 cases initially that they agreed were tainted. The Office of the Public Defender says that it's more like 10,000. And so they're still pushing those. There have been a number of federal cases where people have been let out of prison, a number of state cases. People are still trying to get out um, and to show that their charges and that their cases are related and now there's a huge wave of lawsuits coming. I mean, the backdrop is we've had 300 murders a year for the last five years, more than 300, so 1,500 murders since the events of the book started in the city, very low clearance rate on those, meaning very few people are arrested for the murders that are, are being committed. And police are still, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, a homicide detective who was the lead detective on, part of the book is there's a homicide detective who gets shot in the head the day before he's supposed to testify to the grand jury against these officers. Um, And it's still one of the big enduring mysteries, what happened to him. And the lead detective on that case was arrested a couple of weeks ago for taking a contractor who built a deck for him. He didn't like the work. So he and his whole squad pull up on the contractor with their guns and their badges. They take the guy allegedly, put him in the back of the car, take him to the bank and make him write, get a, $3,000 $3,000 certified cashier's check for them and threaten to take him in the woods and then take him off and take him back. So there's still just rampant criminal activity within the Baltimore Police Department, still a severe murder crisis on the streets and still a, a profound questioning of the entire criminal justice system from, I mean, we watch tons of criminal cases. They record them all in video and we can watch them. And, and they'll say like, your Honor, my client, they went in his house and they caught it on their own body camera footage. And the prosecutor being like, well, that doesn't seem like really an issue. And the judge being like, maybe that's a lawsuit. but uh, And so it really goes at every level of the criminal justice system to call it into question.
0: The way that surveillance operates in the book is really interesting because the cops are sort of aware that it's the twilight of them being able to do this kind of stuff because of the cameras that are all around town. But that almost like spurs them to commit more crime before it ends. And I don't know, there's just something very visceral about like I, I, after the end of the book, I went and like looked at videos you could see online of some of the things that are talked about in the book. And there's something just about that perspective, like from the chest that maybe it's like, because I played like a lot of like grand theft auto in college while smoking weed, but it's just, it puts you in inside the video. I was watching also the one it was came out in the last couple of days of, um, the GM of the Toronto Raptors getting in a shoving match with, um, the cop. And it's like, it couldn't be more clear who shoves who first, like the hands are flying out from the camera. We've, we've never really had that kind of Put yourself in another person's soul, kind of experience available.
2: Yeah, I never thought of it that way. It really is like very much like a video game. And you know, what the police tried to do then in response, especially the Baltimore police, is when they release body camera footage publicly, which they do selectively, they generally have a big production around it and they slow it down and they put circles around certain details and things like that. And they try to tell you that you're not seeing what you're seeing. But when you see that raw footage, you kind of immediately connect to the officer. Sometimes I think that pro-police people th- seem to think that you can relate to the officer, but these, I think you really get to see it from their point of view. And if you know what you're looking for, um, it's really shocking and you feel it in a way that you don't even feel it on the page. But we kind of hope that, yeah, in a way like that idea of a camera again, we want the book to feel like a camera. I hope we captured that a little bit.
3: And in terms of justice, I mean, it's important to note that like 99.9% of the uses of body camera is to convict suspects, you know, to convict defendants, and they control the footage and they use the footage. But to the extent that these guys were being criminals, then they were worried about the cameras. And and at first they got caught on private cameras in a bar, then they got caught on the ones on the street, and then finally on their own body cameras. And so it really was this net they saw ensnaring them and that did ramp up. We're gonna have to stop this street ripping and robbing people on the street. So we'll go on a rampage now. But even before the body cameras, they were using their cell phones to falsify evidence as well. The U.S. attorney in the case said, what, we thought body cameras were the hope, but when they're falsifying all the evidence, what, what does that say to the reform program that we are trying to put forth?
0: Where do you go from here? Uh, what's next? There's uh, no more city paper, no more beat. Uh, you're both still in Baltimore. What are the prospects for uh, a reporter in Baltimore right now?
3: I'm working on a book, about white supremacy and the transmission of white supremacy that isn't in Baltimore, that's in South Carolina, which I'm originally from South Carolina. And it sort of goes from Pitchfork Ben Tillman up to Donald Trump and and beyond. And through my own family's history as well, who were uh, slaveholders. My great-great-grandfather was involved in an assassination, I think, of a political figure in Clarendon County right before the Klan trials of 1870. So I'm working on, uh, and was fortunate enough to go to... South Carolina for a month of reporting right before the pandemic. So I at least have enough material to be working forward with that right now and and trying to figure out in my own life. I mean, one of the things that this book really showed is that the logic of policing is the logic of whiteness, that police, like white people, think that the law is to protect us, but not to bind us, that it's for our use. And so that really pushed me in that direction to unpack that part of it as it happened in my own life. And I think Brandon them is pushing on some other elements from the book pushed us toward as well
2: yeah I'm sort of I'm working on a project that I, I think will be a book but it's not a book yet so I hate to be one of those guys who's like I'm working on a book that's not a book yet but um, <laughs> I'm really interested in developing um, something about how we deal with sort of heroin and the overdose crisis as it really is. I've been spending a lot of time talking to people who in other countries who have safe consumption sites, like places where people are allowed to shoot up and it's acceptable. And I've kind of found a really complicated network of safe consumption sites that are off the books and technically illegal around Baltimore in vacant buildings in people's basement, a kind of um, there's places doing it. There's churches that are doing this covertly. So there's kind of this vast network of people trying to stop the overdose crisis because, as COVID shows, our government is pretty hapless against this uh, any public health issue. And they've been really not particularly involved in fixing the overdose crisis. Um, and I did a story, and that kind of has gotten snagged because of COVID because obviously you can't travel to like, do that. So I'm talking to a lot of these people over Zoom right now. During the kind of peak of the pandemic, or what seemed like the peak in April, I was talking to some heroin dealers in Baltimore who were sort of doing using PPE and finding ways to deal dope safely, which is a really interesting kind of complex, weird thing with the drug underground economy that I want
3: to explore.
0: Thank you so much uh, for this interview, both of you.
3: Thank hey, you. Thanks so much for having us. We, we listened uh, pretty religiously while writing the book, too. You know, so it helps inspire you when you're like, oh, these people actually finished their shit. Uh, (laughs) they're talking smartly about it. We can finish too.
0: And thus, we come to the end of another long form podcast. Thanks very much to my guests. And to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Julianne Parker, and the incredible sponsors that make this show possible, namely MailChimp. We'll be back next week.